Good morning, church family. My name is Amy Ware. Please join me in reading our passage today, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit in the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was in second grade, we had a poster contest at my school, and the title of the poster contest was When I Grow Up. And so when I grow up, and you write down what you wanted to be when you grow up. So when I grow up, when I was in second grade, I wanted to be an architect. And so my poster was, when I grow up, I want to be an architect. And I, uh, you know, drew this poster. I drew a little floor plan on my poster. I made some models of some buildings that I was going to design on, uh, out of cardboard and glued them. It was a 3D poster. I even uh, got a little styrofoam ball and glued it to the poster and it was like the moon and I put little buildings on the moon because it was Huntsville. It was the 80s and we were all going to live in the moon. And so uh, I was so proud of this poster. Uh, and so, you know, day comes when it's due, I take it in and I'm sure that I'm going to win the contest. And I think there was like even a prize that went with the, you know, the, whoever won the contest got a prize. And so I'm sure I'm going to win. My poster, it's futuristic. Uh, the art was amazing. It was 3D. I mean, they're going to be, everybody's going to be so impressed with this poster. But then, sure enough, I didn't win the contest. Um, Jonathan McDaniel won the contest. And uh, his poster, it wasn't 3D, it didn't have any models built on it, the art was only okay. But the message of the poster, what he wrote on the poster is, when I grow up, I can do anything I want as long as I put my mind to it. When I grow up, I can do anything as long as I put my mind to it. And underneath, you know, he had a picture of him as an attorney and him as a doctor and him as a professional baseball player. There's so many options. I can do anything I want as long as I put my mind to it. Now, coincidentally, I didn't become an architect and Jonathan didn't become a lawyer, a doctor or a professional baseball player. But that message was pretty uh, ubiquitous when I was a child. I mean, it was everywhere. You can do anything you want. You just got to put your mind to it. We heard it from coaches and teachers and we heard it in music. I mean, even the, the song Lose Yourself by Eminem. That's the last line of the song. You can do anything. You can do whatever you put your mind to, man. And people really like this message. In fact, some people kind of think it's a biblical message. Maybe it originated with the Bible. Now, of course, it, it didn't. It was actually first written by Benjamin Franklin, who wrote a lot of famous one-liners that a lot of people confuse for biblical truth. A couple examples are haste makes waste. That's Benjamin Franklin, not the Bible. No pain, no gain. And of course, 
You can do anything you put your mind to. Now, I get it, right? I understand what people are trying to do when, you, when we say this to one another. We're, we're trying to encourage one another. We're trying to say, look, there's a lot of possibilities out there. There's a lot of opportunity. Uh, and if you work hard, it, good things can happen. I, I certainly understand this impulse. But if we're not careful, we can actually, through this message, end up reinforcing the message of the serpent here in Genesis 3. If we're not careful, even with the best of intentions, we can actually end up pushing people away from God's design, away from fellowship with God, instead of towards Him. So as we look at this passage today, I want to talk about three things that I think are interesting in the text. First, the appeal of the serpent. Second, the design of God. And then finally, the way of freedom. So let's look at the appeal of the serpent. This is a very famous Bible passage, obviously. It's the story of sin entering into the world, the fall of humanity, this moment where everything changed. This moment where for the first time we read about in the biblical narrative that the human heart did not trust God. Rather, it listened to the voice of the serpent instead. And from that time to this, this, this impulse to not listen to the voice of God, but to listen to the voice of the serpent has been in our heart and we've seen pain and violence and division and all sorts of evil in the world as a result. But if you've ever paid attention to the appeal of the serpent, what he's actually appealing to is it's really interesting. He comes to the woman and, and essentially he says to her, are you limited in any way, right? Has God limited you in any way? Now, at first she kind of says, no, we actually have a lot of freedom here. We, we can eat of any tree of the garden. It's only the tree that is in the middle of the garden, this one tree that we can't eat of. And God said, if we eat of it, we will surely die. But Satan starts with his appeal. The serpent comes back to her, verse 4. says, the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. No. God knows that when you eat... If you're just going to take it that treat, if you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Adam, the man who was standing there with Eve, they were listening to this whole appeal of the serpent. And they heard it. You'll be like God. Your eyes will be opened. You'll no longer be limited. You won't have to just trust God. You'll be able to... Do what you want to do. As long as you put your mind to it, you can do whatever you want to do. You'll be like God. You can do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. You can do whatever you put your mind to. Now, it's a pretty incredible invitation, right? It's a, it's a pretty incredible appeal. You can be like God. You can do whatever you want. And, and actually, I think that this is the same appeal that the serpent is still giving you can be like God. There's, there's, a, there's an impulse in this that you should be like God. You shouldn't be limited. You should be in control. You should be able to maximize your plan and your potential and your influence. You can do whatever you put your mind to. It sounds incredible. But it's not really true. There are limits. We live in a world of limits. Now, we do have a lot of possibilities in the world today, and that's a gift. That's grace from God. But it's not endless possibilities. And in our modern age, we really struggle with this, right? There's a sense where we almost feel entitled to endless possibilities. 
We can do whatever we want as long as we put our mind to it, as long as we are willing to put in the work or we have the resources, we can do whatever we want. We feel unlimited. And there's almost an impulse that you should feel unlimited. You, somebody comes in with limits. Somebody comes in saying you can't do that. Somebody comes in saying that's wrong. Somebody said there's a barrier here. That almost feels wrong. That feels oppressive. We live in an age that wants to press against limits at every level. Now, there are obvious ways that this is kind of happening in our modern culture. The transgender movement is obviously a, it's an obvious example of this. We live in an age where technology has advanced to such a point where you can alter the human body and you can make a man kind of look like a woman and you can make a woman sort of look like a man. But of course, you can't actually change your gender. Every cell in the human body is either male or female, but it's part of this impulse that we shouldn't have limits. We should be able to be self-determined. Now, I... I mentioned that as, a, as an obvious example, but I don't know that many of you are struggling with that today. I don't know that's permeating our body. And there may be somebody here that you're struggling with gender dysphoria, and I would invite you to, to come and talk to myself or, or to talk to Lou or Liz, somebody in our counseling center. We have an amazing counseling center, and we'd, we'd love to sit down with you and talk to you about why that might be happening, why, you're, why you may be having some of those feelings. But again, I don't think that's a widespread thing that uh, is permeating at least this body here today. But I do think this messaging, this messaging of self-determination, this messaging of self-maximization, in one way or another actually impacts all of us. Uh, we're not above this. It's, we all grew up like this. We all had teachers that said the same thing. You can do anything you put your mind to. And there's a sense with that message that you should be doing something spectacular, right? If you can do anything you put your mind to, you should be changing the world. You should have an amazing job. You should be solving injustice. You, you should be doing something extraordinary. And, and if you're not, it's only because your mind is weak. It's only because you're not trying hard enough. Melissa Kruger wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition a couple years ago. And it's, it's addressed to women, but I think men feel some of these same pressures. Um, but it's, the, the title of the article is, Sisters, You Have Permission to Lead an Ordinary Life. And again, she's talking about the particular pressures that women feel. But again, men can identify with some of these things also. Here's how she starts her article. She says, you're special. Don't let anyone limit your potential. You're made for more. Your life is up to you. Exercise more. Eat better. Make time for yourself. Cheer others on. Give more. Do more. Try harder. Run faster. And while you're at it, change the world. Solve injustice. Start a nonprofit. Lead a Bible study. Read all the new books. Maybe write one, too. Read the classics. Make sure you vote. Wash your face. Live untamed. No wonder you haven't had time to think about what's for dinner. But whenever you do, make sure it's all organic, range-free, and locally sourced nutritious meal. Do you feel the pressure too? Some days it's exhausting to be a woman. Internally, we feel the reality of not measuring up to our own hopes of being a friend, employee, daughter, wife, mother that we think we should be. Externally, we have so many influencers telling us to make an amazing, groundbreaking difference in the world. Words meant to, words meant to inspire can exhaust 
you know, in a culture like ours, where you, you a culture of self-determination, where you make an identity for yourself, you, you make a name for yourself by what you can achieve. We, we feel this pressure, achieve, get wealthy, be determined, be like God, be in control. You can do whatever you want to. You just got to put your mind to it. Mike Parsons and I were talking about this the other night, and he reminded me of the, the book, The Psychology of Money. And uh, in that book, there's a passage that says this, the highest form of wealth is the ability to wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever I want today. People want to become wealthier to make them happier, but happiness is a complicated subject matter because everyone's different. But if there's a common denominator in happiness, a universe fuel of joy, it's that people want control of their own lives the ability to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, for as long as you want, is priceless. It's the highest dividend money pays. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there's a good to wealth. There's certainly a good to success and this notion of freedom. But what if we weren't meant to do whatever we want? What if the limits around us that exist in life, what if those limits are actually good for us? <laughs> what if God has put limits in place to actually lead to human flourishing, to lead to true happiness? What if there was a kind of happiness that's even greater than self-determination? And I think that the Bible is saying that there is, which leads to my next point, the design of God. God had placed Adam and Eve in the garden for a purpose. And even though he had given them commands, and even though he had given them boundaries, he'd given them a lot of freedom. And his desire in his commands and in his boundaries was that they would be blessed, that they would flourish. And as long as the man listened to the voice of the Lord, as long as the man and the woman obeyed the commands of God, as long as the man and the woman respected the boundaries that God had put in place, they were going to flourish. And here's the deal. That's God's goal for you too. Listen to my voice. Oh, oh, respect the boundaries that I've put in place. Get to know me. And my goal for you is that you would flourish. Here, here's really my point. Here's what I'm getting to in all this. This. Do you, do you have a self-determined life or do you have a God-determined life, right? Who's determining your life? Who, who's anchoring the value of your life? Do you have a self-determined life or a God-determined life? Now, I know you're all in church today. I can see you. I know you're all here. So I know, at least for most of you, unless you're like really here against your will, you want God somewhere in the picture, Right? You know that God's supposed to be somewhere in there, but, but is God really running the show? Is he really determining your life? Or do you just kind of want him to bless your plan for your life? It's like, God, here's what I want to do. I, I need you to kind of come alongside and help me out here. Are you living a God-determined life, a God-focused life, or a self-focused life? Let me, let me try to put this in the words of Jesus. Matthew 10. Jesus says in verse 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And then he says this. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Can we just be honest? This is so contrary to everything we've ever been told. <laughs> this is so different to everything that was ever like instilled in us. Everything that I was ever told was go make something of yourself. Go, go make something of your life. Go find a life and then you'll be happy. Jesus says, no, lose your life. Find me, follow me. Find the one who sent me. Lose your life to find me and then you'll be happy. That's incredibly radical. I wonder if we really believe this. And again, now it's, it's not that Christians don't work or have dreams or have great jobs or have families or have children that we love. No, of course, but those are blessings from the Lord. It is that none of that is our life. Jesus, knowing God in Jesus, that is our life. So he can determine our life, whatever he wants to do with our life, right? Whether it's great by worldly standards or nothing by worldly standards. That's not where we're finding our identity. Philippians 4, it's one of the most, it's one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. But I think Paul explains this really well. Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned in whatever situation that I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do, and here's the one that's always misquoted, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What Paul is not saying there is that like, man, with Christ, you should win the Super Bowl. Or with Christ, you can be in the NBA. Or with Christ, you can become a billionaire. That's just another way of reinforcing the lie of the serpent. You can do whatever you want to as long as you put your mind to it and wear a cross necklace and say a little prayer, right? That's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul is saying here is actually the opposite. He's saying, I have abounded and it's awesome to abound. And I've been brought low and it stinks to be brought low. And I've had plenty and it's great to have plenty and I've been in need, and it's no fun to be in need. But in all of this, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content because none of that defines me. That's not my life, abounding or being in need or having plenty or being in want. That's not my life. Christ is my life. Like the song in Christ alone says, he is my light, my strength, my song. My life is not determined by me. It's determined by God. My life is not determined by my ability to achieve. My life is determined by how I know God, by who I am in God's economy. This is the posture of Jesus, even in the garden on the night that he was betrayed. It's not my will that matters. It's God's will. True happiness is not determined by waking up every day and saying, I am so special, I can do whatever I want to today. True happiness, real happiness, the kind of happiness that you were designed for is to wake up every morning and say, I know God and I love God and God loves me. 
And if that is true of you, whether you become the CEO of a big company or whether you don't have much at all or whether you win the Super Bowl or whether you lose every game, you can be content because you know God and because God loves you. And there's no greater treasure than that. There's no greater identity than that. And again, it's not that, it's not that we're emotionless, right? When good things happy, happen, Christians are happy. And when bad things happen, Christians get sad. That, that's normal human behavior. It is that the events of our life don't determine whether or not you've lived a good or successful life. Again, it's not that Christians don't work hard or have dreams. In fact, if your life is the Lord's, if, if your identity is in the Lord, and you realize my life is the Lord's, then you realize God in his kindness to me has entrusted me with different gifts and talents and experiences and opportunities. And so I'm going to use what God has entrusted to me for his glory, for his good. I'm not going to squander these gifts. The difference is I'm not using them for myself. I'm using them for him. There's a story that Jesus tells about a man that went on a journey and he gave three of his servants, he gave one five talents, he gave one three talents, and he gave one one talent. And the master went on a journey, he gave his servants five, three, and one talents. Now a talent was about $10,000, so $50,000, $30,000, $10,000. He says, hey, put this to good use while I'm gone. So the master goes away, and the one who had five talents invested, worked hard, realized what he had, and he made 100000 he doubled his money. The one who had 30,000 made 30,000 more. He doubled his money. But the one who had $10,000, he took his money and he buried it, knowing that he, he didn't want to lose it, knowing that his master was shrewd. He, did, he didn't want to lose the money that he had given. And when the master returns, he doesn't say that was a smart, responsible thing to do. He looks at that servant that had one talent and he says, you are wicked. You are lazy. I didn't give you this for nothing. I wanted you to use it. I wanted you to at least invest it in the bank. So again, it's not that we don't have talents and opportunities. We don't work hard with those. It's just our goal is not to do whatever we want, whenever we want. Our goal is to please the master. Our goal is to please the Lord. It's to, to take what he's entrusted to us to please him. And his design for us, God's design for us is that in that we would flourish. You know, Jesus tells another story, Luke 16. It's about a rich man in Lazarus. And in the end of the story, as the story goes on, the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to heaven. And people have misinterpreted this story. They you know, say, what is, what is Jesus saying here? Is it, is it that rich people go to hell or poor people go to heaven? Now, the Bible does say that it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than a poor man. But that's not really what this story is about. This story is about identity. If you notice in the story, the rich man never has a name. He's only known as the rich man. Why? Because that's who he was. That's that's his identity. He was the rich man. He'd found something that gave him a life and an identity. Lazarus is known as Lazarus because he really knows God and all he has is God. And at one point, the, the rich man from hell calls out to Abraham in heaven. He says, please send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. And Abraham, this is how the story ends. Abraham basically says, look, they have Moses, they have the prophets. It's not a lack of information. They have plenty of information to know who God is, to know God's truth and God's way. It's not an information problem. It's an identity problem. There's something in their life 
that they're so counting on. There's something in your life, rich man, that you were so counting on that you totally missed the treasure that God was offering you. You totally missed the identity that God desired for your life. And here's a question to you. Is that true of you? Is there something like that in your life? You know, we've talked a lot about idols at Christ's covenant, but, you know, an idol is anything other than God, anything in your life other than God that's become an ultimate thing. An idol can be good. An idol can be good things. Money, work, family, friends. These are all good things. But if we're not careful, they can become ultimate things. And this self-determination instinct that we're all brought up with and idolatry go hand in hand. You know, a lot of people think, man, if I could just become an architect, if I, could, if I could just get this much money, if I could just get married and have kids, if I could just live here, if I could just do that, then I would know I am successful and I have a happy life. You all have heard me talk about the Atlanta narrative, right? If I'm making a deal, if I'm remodeling my house, if I'm going on a great vacation, and I want to add if I'm getting a doodle, you know, if, I, if I'm doing these things and I know I'm, I'm living a good life, I'm success. I'm self-determined. I put my mind to it. I got it. Is there anything in your life like that that's become ultimate? It's taken the place of God. It's given you an identity other than God. And I just want you to say, and I, I know you all know the right answer. Like I know you're like, okay, we're in church. No, there's nothing in my life like that. Jesus is my life. I know the right answer. But you should all right now, and I should too be saying, Maybe. maybe, maybe there is, what, how do I know, right? <laughs> and if there is, how do I root that out? How do I know if there's something like that in my life that's, that's grabbing the ultimate place that only God should have? And I think that one of the ways you know, or the way you know, is, is what do you do when, whenever that is bumps up against the commands or the limits of God? What do you do when whatever that is kind of bumps up against one of the commands or one of the limitations that God has put in place? Like money, is, is there any limit to how much money you spend on yourself? Or is it just, hey, as much as I can make, I can keep spending on myself so I can be happier? Have you kind of unconsciously bought into the psychology of money? That's where power and happiness is, self-determination. Or if you said, no, I'm going I'm to limit this. I'm going to limit this. I realize that God's given me all this. I'm going so to spend this much on myself with gratefulness. And I'm going to be radically generous with the rest of the money I can make. What about time? Like, can you stop working? Can you rest? When God's limit of time bumps up against your productivity, what do you do? I mean, some of you are here today and it's like, man, this is the delight of my week to gather with the people of God. Some of you are here today and you're like, this is really slowing down the real productivity I could be having. Whatever that real productivity, I'll go ahead and say that has become an ultimate thing in your life. You're, it's bumping up against one of the limits that God has put in place. Or, or what do you do? I mean, and this is convicting for me. You know, efficiency. I, I like to get stuff done. I want to be efficient with my time, but, but when something doesn't go my way, is it the fruit of the Spirit that flows out of me? Is it patience and kindness and self-control? 
Or are those the moments where actually my to-do list has become ultimate in my life? If God was really your life, honoring him with your wealth would be the first thing that came to mind when you made any money. If God was really your life, gathering with the saints, having a day of rest and spiritual rest and worship would rank high on the things that excite you about the week. If God was really your life, you'd be more concerned about your character and Godward influence than you are, at a, than, than you are for achieving some to-do list. If God were really your life, you'd be most excited about serving him and disciple making. Don't you see? You know what's ultimate when you experience the limits and commands of God. What do you do with those? Are those things a burden? Here's the deal. The talents. You know that story I just told, five, three, and one. Here's the key. Here's the key to understanding the whole story. They were servants. That's the key. None of them was the master. They were all servants of the master. The master had entrusted them the talents. And, and, and their, their job was to work for the master. And the highlight of the story is not, man, I just cashed in 50 grand here. No, the highlight of the story is the day that the master returned when they could say, look, master, what I've done with what you entrusted to me. Is that how you live your life? In light of the day of the Lord, in light of the day that you will see God and say, look at how I've lived my life for you. That great presentation. Are you living a God-determined life or a self-determined life? All this brings me to the final point, the way of freedom. How do we get out of this? Let's be honest. I mean, can we just be honest? This, this messaging, it, is, it has touched all of us. The end of Genesis 3 has always intrigued me. And many of you have heard me talk about this because I'm so intrigued by it. But verse 7, it says, The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is, why didn't they know that they were naked before, right? I mean, that's, that's the intriguing question. How, how did they go all this time not realizing that they were naked. How, how did they not know that, how were they unaware of their nakedness? I mean, even later when God encounters them, verse 10, Adam says to God, I heard you in the sound of the garden, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? What does this mean, right? I, what are we supposed to do with this? And I think this is, I think this is such a clue to, to understanding exactly what we're talking about today. When you're naked, you're incredibly self-aware because you're totally exposed. There's nothing to cover you. Everything about you, at least physically, is known when you are naked. So how were Adam and Eve, before they ate of the fruit, unaware of their nakedness? And here's what I believe the answer is. It's because before sin entered the world, the man and the woman were more aware of God than they were of themselves. They didn't even know where they were naked because they didn't even think about themselves. They, they were just obeying God. They were just doing the will of God. They were just worshiping God. They, were, they had forgotten, they'd completely forgotten about themselves. 
And you see, I want you to hear this. That's, that's the way we were all designed to be. That actually is where human flourishing happens. That actually is where human joy happens. That actually is where real life happens. You forget about yourself. You forget about yourself. You can be totally exposed and forget about yourself because it's not about you. But all of a sudden, they tried to enter into the seat of God. They said, I'm going to be like God. I can do whatever I want to as long as I put my mind to it. And when they entered into that seat, all of a sudden they were like, I'm exposed. They, they caught a glimpse, I'll say it this way. They caught a glimpse of the thing that they had actually put their trust in, which was themselves. And they saw how weak and they saw how fragile and they saw how needy. This thing that they had, they had, they exchanged trust in God for trust in self and they saw, they immediately saw what a bad deal that was. And so what do they do? They couldn't bear it. They immediately started covering themselves. They immediately started hiding themselves. They couldn't bear who they actually were. And, and I believe that this impulse, this same impulse is exactly what we are still doing. We are covering ourselves with achievements and comforts and successes. Maybe saying, let me make this thing look better. Maybe one day I can get to the place of total self-determination, like the psychology of money says, where I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want. You ever been around super successful people? I'm talking about like the people that like, they really kind of can do whatever they want. You know, rarely do I meet somebody like that. I mean, according to the lie of the serpent, that person should be the most poised, the most joyful, the least anxious, the most able to rest of anybody, right? But man, when I've been around like those kind of super wealthy people, that they're, they're, they're oftentimes, and there's a couple of exceptions, but they're oftentimes the most anxious, <laughs> the least joyful, the most erratic, the most fearful, the people that struggle to sleep. Why is that? Why is that? Here's the deal. Because you, you can't really fulfill the lie of the serpent. You can't really be like God. <laughs> you can't keep that act up. You can't keep it up. It, it, things don't go as you want them to go. You're not perfect. You don't always do the right thing. And so we are covering ourselves up with these little meaningless fig leaves that do not work. You know, our problem is we don't trust God with our life. We don't, we don't really, we're not really willing to say, God, take my life. Do whatever you want to with us. So we find ourselves in the place of the woman saying, well, maybe I could do a better job than he could. And so what is going to shake us free of this? Don't you want to be free of this? I want to be free. I want to forget about myself. I want to find my life in God. I, I do believe this book's going to shake us free of this. The end of the chapter. It ends in a sad way. The man and the woman are leaving the garden. They've been cursed. They're having to go outside of the presence of God. But before they go, God himself mercifully comes to them with their little pathetic fig leaf coverings. And he sacrifices an animal and he covers them. And he covers them. And I think they thought when they left the garden, fellowship with God would forever be broken. But it wasn't. There, there was a covering. There was a, there was a divide. But there, obviously, we still, to some degree, have 
fellowship with God. God's kept this line of communication open to us. In the next chapter, we read about them bringing sacrifices to God. There, there was a covering that God provided. And that, and that picture here at the end of Genesis 3 is a picture of, it's ultimately a picture of what God would ultimately do for us, that God himself would come down, that there would be a sacrifice, and that there would be a covering. And let's just see that God in Christ has come down. He's come to be like us, except he wasn't like us. He lived a God-determined life. He was the one that submitted his will to the will of the Father. He's the one that always that, that delighted in the limits of God. And he's the one that delighted in the commands of God and everything that he did. And yet, instead of being blessed for that, he became the sacrifice. You see, when, when we believe the lie of the serpent... In a sense, we're forsaking God, right? When we say, I'm going to be a self-determined person, we're saying, I want to be God. And so we're forsaking God. We're saying, God, I, I don't need you. I, I got this. I'm going to be sure we forsake God. And, and actually what is just in light of us forsaking God is that he would forsake us. As he would say, okay, you, you, want, you want to be self-determined? You want to go your own way? You want to listen to my voice? Fine. But in light of that, you will be forsaken by God. Me, but don't you see what Jesus did? He came and even though he always delighted in the way of God, he was the one that was forsaken. He was the one that was put out. He was the one that was crushed for our iniquities. He's the one that took on our record of sin. He was forsaken by God. And I want you to hear this, so that we could be covered. That we could be covered. He was the Passover lamb that has shielded us from the storm of God. He is the animal that was sacrificed so that we could be covered. And so I want you to hear this invitation today. Receive the invitation of Jesus. As you look to him who comes to us in this gentle and kind and lowly way. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you a covering. We don't have to walk in shame. We don't have to hide. We can be confident to go before the Lord. We can know that in Christ we can be forgiven and loved by God. We can know that we can come back into fellowship with God whose plans for us are good, are right. It's eternal flourishing. It's eternal joy. It's eternal peace. It's eternal love from God. Come to Jesus. See what he's done for you. Receive his love and this will change your life. You've heard it said, you can do anything you put your mind to. But I say unto you, live in light of God's sovereignty. Live in light of God's power. Live in light of God's wisdom and love and beauty. And if you do, you won't even want to be in control of your life. You'll trust him to determine your steps. You'll grow to love his limits. And you'll learn to follow his ways. Let's pray. <sighs> Father in heaven, please free us from this invitation of self-determination. Father, please free us of this self-awareness that leads us to believe that our life is determined by what we can achieve or do, what title we have, how much money we have. Help us to leverage those things that you do give us, those gifts that you do give us in light of our master. 
in light of the fact that we are servants of the master. Lord, that's where joy is found and flourishing is found and life is found and identity and rest is found in the heart of God. Lord, so give us rest today as we look to you in your son, Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.